Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight. I will be reading Charles Dickens' Bleak House. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter One In Chancery London, Michaelmas term lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall. Implacable November weather. 
as much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth. And it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus, forty feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Holborn Hill. Smoke lowering down from chimney pots, making a soft black drizzle with flakes of soot in it as big as full-grown snowflakes, gone into mourning, one might imagine, for the death of the sun. Dogs, undistinguishable in mire. Horses, scarcely better, splashed to their very blinkers. Foot passengers, jostling one another's umbrellas, in a general infection of ill temper, and losing their foothold at street corners, where tens of thousands of other foot passengers have been slipping and sliding since the day broke, if this day ever broke, adding new deposits to the crust upon crust of mud, sticking at those points tenaciously to the pavement and accumulating at compound interest. Fog everywhere. Fog up the river where it flows among green aits and meadows. Fog down the river where it rolls defiled among the tears of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. Fog on the Essex marshes, fog on the Kentish heights, fog creeping into the cabooses of collier brigs, fog lying out on the yards and hovering in the rigging of great ships, fog drooping on the gunwales of barges and small boats. Fog in the eyes and throats of ancient Greenwich pensioners, wheezing by the firesides of their wards. Fog in the stem and bowl of the afternoon pipe of the wrathful skipper down in his close cabin. Fog cruelly pinching the toes and fingers of his shivering little prentice boy on deck. Chance people on the bridges, peeping over the parapets into another sky of fog, with fog all around them, as if they were up in a balloon and hanging in the misty clouds. Gas looming through the fog in divers places in the streets, much as the sun may, from the spongy fields, be seen to loom by husbandman and ploughboy. Most of the shops lighted two hours before their time, as the gas seems to know, for it has a haggard and unwilling look. The afternoon is rawest, and the dense fog is densest, and the muddy streets are muddiest, near that leaden-headed old obstruction, appropriate ornament for the threshold of a leaden-headed old corporation, Temple Bar. And hard by Temple Bar is Lincoln's Inn Hall, at the very heart of the fog. Sits the Lord Chancellor in his high court of chancery. Never can there come fog too thick, never can there come mud and mire too deep, to assort with the groping and floundering condition which this high court of chancery, most pestilent of ori sinners, holds this day in the sight of heaven and earth. On such an afternoon, if ever, the Lord High Chancellor ought to be sitting here, as here he is, with a foggy glory round his head, softly fenced in with crimson cloth and curtains, addressed by a large advocate with great whiskers, a little voice, and an interminable brief, and outwardly directing his contemplation to the lantern in the roof, where he can see nothing but fog. 
On such an afternoon, some score of members of the High Court of Chancery Bar ought to be, as here they are, mistily engaged in one of the ten thousand stages of an endless cause, tripping one another up on slippery precedents, groping knee-deep in technicalities, running their goat-hair and horse-hair-awarded heads against walls of words, and making a pretense of equity with serious faces, as players might. On such an afternoon, the various solicitors in the cause, some two or three of whom have inherited it from their fathers, who made a fortune by it, ought to be, as are they not, ranged in a line, in a long matted well, but you might look in vain for truth at the bottom of it, between the registrar's red table and the silk gowns, with bills, cross-bills, answers, rejoinders, conjunctions, affidavits, issues, references to masters, masters reports, mountains of costly nonsense piled before them. Well may the court be dim with wasting candles here and there. Well may the fog hang heavy in it, as if it would never get out. Well may the stained glass windows lose their colour and admit no light of day into the place. Well may the uninitiated from the streets who peep in through the glass panes in the door, be deterred from entrance by its owlish aspect and by the droll languidly echoing to the roof from the padded dais where the Lord High Chancellor looks into the lantern that has no light in it and where the attendant wigs are all stuck in a fog bank. This is the Court of Chancery, which has its decaying houses and its blighted lands in every shire, which has its worn-out lunatic in every madhouse and its dead in every churchyard, which has its ruined suitor with his slip-shod heels and threadbare dress, borrowing and begging through the round of every man's acquaintance, which gives to moneyed might the means abundantly of wearying out the right, which so exhausts finances, patience, courage, hope, so overthrows the brain and breaks the heart, that there is not an honourable man among its practitioners who would not give, who does not often give the warning, suffer any wrong that can be done you rather than come here. Who happened to be in the Lord Chancellor's court this murky afternoon, besides the Lord Chancellor, the council in the cause, two or three council who are never in any cause, and the well of solicitors before mentioned? There is the registrar below the judge, in wig and gown, and there are two or three maces, or petty bags, or privy purses, or whatever they may be, in legal court suits. These are all yawning, for no crumb of amusement ever falls from jarndyce and jarndyce, the cause in hand, which was squeezed dry years upon years ago. The shorthand writers, the reporters of the court, and the reporters of the newspapers, invariably decamp with the rest of the regulars when jarndyce and jarndyce comes on. Their places are a blank. Standing on a seat at the side of the hall, the better to peer into the curtained sanctuary, is a little mad old woman in a squeezed bonnet, who is always in court from its sitting to its rising, and always expecting some incomprehensible judgment to be given in her favour. Some say she really is, or was, a party to the suit, but no one knows for certain, because no one cares, 
She carries some small litter in a reticule, which she calls her documents, principally consisting of paper matches and dry lavender. A sallow prisoner has come up in custody for the half-dozenth time to make a personal application to purge himself of his contempt, which, being a solitary surviving executor who has fallen into a state of conglomeration, about accounts of which it is not pretended that he had ever any knowledge, he is not at all likely ever to do. In the meantime, his prospects in life are ended. Another ruined suitor, who periodically appears from Shropshire and breaks out into efforts to address the Chancellor at the close of the day's business, and who can by no means be made to understand that the Chancellor is legally ignorant of his existence after making it desolate for a quarter of a century, paints himself in a good place and keeps an eye on the judge, ready to call out, my lord, in a voice of sonorous complaint, on the instant of his rising. A few lawyers, clerks, and others who know this suitor by sight linger on the chance of his furnishing some fun and enlivening the dismal weather a little. Jarndyce and Jarndyce drones on. This scarecrow of a suit has, in course of time, become so complicated that no man alive knows what it means. The parties to it understand it at least, but it has been observed that no two chancery lawyers can talk about it for five minutes without coming to a total disagreement as to all the premises. Innumerable children have been born into the cause. Innumerable young people have married into it. Innumerable old people have died out of it. Scores of persons have deliriously found themselves made parties in Jarndyce and Jarndyce without knowing how or why. Whole families have inherited legendary hatreds with the suit. The little plaintiff or defendant, who was promised a new rocking horse when Jarndyce and Jarndyce should be settled, has grown up, possessed himself of a real horse, and trotted away into the other world. Fair wards of court have faded into mothers and grandmothers. A long procession of chancers has come in and gone out. The legion of bills in the suit have been transformed into mere bills of mortality. There are not three Jarndyces left upon the earth, perhaps, since old Tom Jarndyce, in despair, blew his brains out at a coffee house in Chancery Lane. But Jarndyce and Jarndyce still drags its dreary length before the court, perennially hopeless. Jarndyce and Jarndyce has passed into a joke. That is the only good that has ever come of it. It has been death to many, but it is a joke in the profession. Every master in chancery has had a reference out of it. Every chancellor was in it for somebody or other when he was counsel at the bar. Good things have been said about it by blue-nosed, bulbous-shoed old benchers and select port wine committee after dinner in hall. Articled clerks have been in the habit of fleshing their legal wit upon it. The last Lord Chancellor handled it neatly when correcting Mr. Blowers, the eminent silk gown, who said that such a thing might happen when the sky rained potatoes. He observed, or when we get through jarndyce and jarndyce, Mr. Blowers, a pleasantry that particularly tickled the maces, bags, and purses. How many people out of the suit, jarndyce and jarndyce, has stretched forth its unwholesome hand to spoil and corrupt, 
would be a very wide question. From the master, upon whose impaling files, reams of dusty warrants and jarnice and jarnice have grimly writhed into many shapes, down to the copying clerk in the six clerk's office, who has copied his tens of thousands of chancery folio pages under that eternal heading. No man's nature has been made better by it. In trickery, evasion, procrastination, spoliation, botheration, under false pretenses of all sorts, there are influences that can never come to good. The very solicitor's boys, who have kept the wretched suitors at bay by protesting time out of mind that Mr. Chisel, Mizzle, or otherwise, was particularly engaged and had appointments until dinner, may have got an extra moral twist and shuffle into themselves out of jarndyce and jarndyce. The receiver in the cause has acquired a goodly sum of money by it, but has acquired, too, a distrust of his own mother and a contempt for his own kind. Chisel, mizzle, and otherwise have lapsed into a habit of vaguely promising themselves that they will look into that outstanding little matter and see what can be done for Drizzle, who is not well used, when Jarndyce and Jarndyce shall be got out of office. Shirking and sharking in all their many varieties have been sown broadcast by the ill-fated cause, and even those who have contemplated its history from the outermost circle of such evil have been insensibly tempted into a loose way of letting bad things alone to take their own bad course, and of a loose belief that if the world go wrong, it was, in some offhand manner, never meant to go right. Thus, in the midst of the mud and at the heart of the fog, sits the Lord High Chancellor in his high court of chancery. Mr. Tangle, says the Lord High Chancellor, Latterly, something restless under the eloquence of that learned gentleman. My lord, says Mr. Tangle. Mr. Tangle knows more of Jarndyce and Jarndyce than anybody. He's famous for it. Supposed never to have read anything else since he left school. Have you nearly concluded your argument? My lord, no. Variety of points. Feel it my duty to submit, lordship is the reply that slides out of Mr. Tangle. Several members of the bar are still to be heard, I believe, says the Chancellor with a slight smile. Eighteen of Mr. Tangle's learned friends, each armed with a little summary of eighteen hundred sheets, bob up like eighteen hammers in a pianoforte, make eighteen bows, and drop into their eighteen places of obscurity. We will proceed with the hearing on Wednesday fortnight, says the Chancellor, for the question at issue is only a question of costs, a mere bud on the forest tree of the parent suit, and really will come to a settlement one of these days. The Chancellor rises, the bar rises, the prisoner is brought forward in a hurry, the man from Shropshire cries, My lord. Maces, bags and purses indignantly proclaim silence and frown at the man from Shropshire. In reference, proceeds the Chancellor, still on Jarndyce and Jarndyce, to the young girl. Bigger Lordship's pardon. Boy, says Mr. Tangle, prematurely. In reference, proceeds the Chancellor, with a extra distinctness, to the young girl and boy, the two young people. Mr. Tangle crushed. 
whom I directed to be in attendance today and who are now in my private room. I will see them and satisfy myself as to the expediency of making the order for their residing with their uncle. Mr. Tangle on his legs again. Pardon. Dead. With their chancellor looking through his double eyeglass at the papers on his desk. Grandfather. Pardon. Victim of rash action. Brains. Suddenly, a very little counsel with a terrific bass voice arises, fully inflated, in the back settlements of the fog and says, Will your lordship allow me? I appear for him. He is a cousin, several times removed. I am not at the moment prepared to inform the court in what exact remove he is a cousin, but he is a cousin. Leaving this address, delivered like a sepulchral message, ringing in the rafters of the roof, the very little counsel drops and the fog knows him no more. Everybody looks for him. Nobody can see him. I will speak with both the young people, says the Chancellor and Hugh, and satisfy myself on the matter of their residing with their cousin. I will mention the matter tomorrow morning when I take my seat. The Chancellor is about to bow to the bar when the prisoner is presented. Nothing can possibly come of the prisoner's conglomeration, but his being sent back to prison, which is soon done. The man from Shropshire ventures another remonstrative, my lord, but the Chancellor, being aware of him, has vanished. Everybody else quickly vanishes too. A battery of blue bags is loaded with heavy charges of papers and carried off by clerks. The little, old, mad woman marches off with her documents. The empty court is locked up. If all the injustice it has committed and all the misery it has caused could only be locked up with it and the whole burnt away in a great funeral pyre, why so much the better for other parties than the parties in Jarndyce and Jarndyce. Chapter 2 In Fashion It is but a glimpse of the world of fashion that we want in this same merry afternoon. It is not so unlike the Court of Chancery, but that we may pass from one scene to the other as the crow flies. Both the world of fashion and the Court of Chancery are things of precedent and usage. Oversleeping Rip Van Winkles, who have played at strange games through a deal of thundery weather. Sleeping beauties, whom the night will wake one day, when all the stopped spits in the kitchen shall begin to turn prodigiously. It is not a large world, relatively even to this world of ours, which has its limits too, as your highness shall find when you have made the tour of it, and are come to the brink of the void beyond. It is a very little speck. There is much good in it. There are many good and true people in it. It has its appointed place. But the evil of it is that it is a world wrapped up in too much jeweler's cotton and fine wool, and cannot hear the rushing of the larger worlds, and cannot see them as they circle round the sun. It is a deadened world, and its growth is sometimes unhealthy for want of air. My Lady Dedlock has returned to her house in town for a few days, previous to her departure for Paris, where her ladyship intends to stay some weeks, after which her movements are uncertain. 
the fashionable intelligence says so for the comfort of the Parisians, that it knows all fashionable things. To know otherwise were to be unfashionable. My Lady Dedlock has been down at what she calls in familiar conversation her place in Lincolnshire. The waters are out in Lincolnshire. An arch of the bridge in the park has been sapped and sopped away. The adjacent low-lying ground for half a mile in breadth is a stagnant river with melancholy trees for islands in it and a surface punctured all over all day long with falling rain. My Lady Dedlock's place has been extremely dreary. The weather, for many a day and night, has been so wet that the trees seem wet through and the soft loppings and prunings of the woodman's axe can make no crash or crackle as they fall. The deer, looking soaked, leave quagmires where they pass. The shot of a rifle loses its sharpness in the moist air and its smoke moves in a tardy little cloud towards the green rise, coppice-topped, that makes a background for the falling rain. The view from my Lady Dedlock's own windows is alternately a lead-coloured view and a view in Indian ink. The vases on the stone terrace in the foreground catch the rain all day, and the heavy drops fall, drip, 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 upon the broad-flagged pavement, called from old time the Ghost's Walk, all night. On Sundays, the little church in the park is mouldy, the oaken pulpit breaks out in a cold sweat, and there is a general smell and taste as of the ancient deadlocks in their graves. My Lady Dedlock, who is childless, looking out in the early twilight from her boudoir at a keeper's lodge, and seeing the light of a fire upon the latticed panes, and smoke rising from the chimney, and a child chased by a woman, running out into the rain to meet the shining figure of a wrapped-up man coming through the gate, has been put quite out of temper. My Lady Dedlock says that she has been bored to death. Therefore, my Lady Dedlock has come away from the place in Lincolnshire and has left it to the rain and the crows and the rabbits and the deer and the partridges and the pheasants. The pictures of the Dedlock's past and gone have seemed to vanish into the damp walls and mere lowness of spirits as the housekeeper has passed along the old rooms, shutting up the shutters. And when they will next come forth again, the fashionable intelligence, which, like the fiend, is omniscient of the past and present, but not the future, cannot yet undertake to say. Sir Lester Dedlock is only a baronet, but there's no mightier baronet than he. His family is as old as the hills and infinitely more respectable. He has a general opinion that the world might get on without hills, but would be done up without Dedlocks. He would on the whole admit nature to be a good idea, a little low perhaps, when not enclosed with a park fence, but an idea dependent for its execution on your great county families. He is a gentleman of strict conscience, disdainful of all littleness and meanness, and ready on the shortest notice to die any death you may please to mention, rather than give occasion for the least impeachment of his integrity. He is an honourable, obstinate, truthful, high-spirited, intensely prejudiced, perfectly unreasonable man. 
Sir Leicester is twenty years full measure older than my lady. He will never see sixty-five again, nor perhaps sixty-six, nor yet sixty-seven. He has a twist of the gout now and then, and walks a little stiffly. He is of a worthy presence with his light grey hair and whiskers, his fine shirt frill, his pure white waistcoat, and his blue coat with bright buttons always buttoned. He is ceremonious, stately, most polite on every occasion to my lady, and holds her personal attractions in the highest estimation. His gallantry to my lady, which has never changed since he courted her, is the one little touch of romantic fancy in him. Indeed, he married her for love. A whisper still goes about that she had not even family, howbeit. Sir Leicester had so much family that perhaps he had enough and could dispense with any more. But she had beauty, pride, ambition, insolent resolve, and sense enough to portion out a legion of fine ladies. Wealth and station, added to these, soon floated her upward, and for years now, my Lady Dedlock has been at the centre of the fashionable intelligence and at the top of the fashionable tree. How Alexander wept when he had no more worlds to conquer, everybody knows, or has some reason to know by this time, the matter having been rather frequently mentioned. My Lady Dedlock, having conquered her world, fell not into the melting, but rather into the freezing mood. An exhausted composure a worn-out placidity, an equanimity of fatigue not to be ruffled by interest or satisfaction are the trophies of her victory. She is perfectly well-bred. If she could be translated to heaven tomorrow, she might be expected to ascend without any rapture. She has beauty still, and if it be not in its heyday, it is not yet in its autumn. She has a fine face, originally of a character that would be rather called very pretty than handsome, but improved into classicality by the acquired expression of her fashionable state. Her figure is elegant and has the effect of being tall, not that she is so, but that the most is made, as the Honourable Bob Stables has frequently asserted upon oath, of all her points. The same authority observes that she is perfectly got up, and remarks in commendation of her hair especially, that she is the best groomed woman in the whole stud. With all her perfections on her head, my Lady Dedlock has come up from her place in Lincolnshire, hotly pursued by the fashionable intelligence, to pass a few days at her house in town previous to her departure for Paris, where her ladyship intends to stay some weeks, after which her movements are uncertain. And at her house in town, upon this muddy, murky afternoon, presents himself an old-fashioned old gentleman, attorney at law, and eke solicitor of the High Court of Chancery, who has the honour of acting as legal adviser of the deadlocks, and has as many cast-iron boxes in his office with that name outside, as if the present baronet were the coin of the conjurer's trick and were constantly being juggled through the whole set. Across the hall and upstairs, and along the passages, and through the rooms, which are very brilliant in the season, and very dismal out of it, fairyland to visit, but a desert to live in, the old gentleman is conducted, by a mercury and powder, to my lady's presence. 
The old gentleman is rusty to look at, but is reputed to have made good thrift out of aristocratic marriage settlements and aristocratic wills, and to be very rich. He is surrounded by a mysterious halo of family confidences, of which he is known to be the silent depository. There are noble mausoleums rooted for centuries in retired glades of parks, among the growing timber and the fern, which perhaps hold fewer noble secrets than walk abroad among men, shut up in the breast of Mr. Tulkinghorn. He is of what is called the old school, a phrase generally meaning any school that seems never to have been young, and wears knee breeches tied with ribbons and gaiters or stockings. One peculiarity of his black clothes and his black stockings, be they silk or worsted, is that they never shine. Mute, close, irresponsive to any glancing light, his dress is like himself. He never converses when not professionally consulted. He is found sometimes, speechless but quite at home, at corners of dinner tables in great country houses and near doors of drawing rooms, concerning which the fashionable intelligence is eloquent, where everybody knows him and where half the peerage stops to say, How do you do, Mr. Tulkinghorn? He receives these salutations with gravity and buries them along with the rest of his knowledge. Sir Lester Dedlock is with my lady and is happy to see Mr. Tulkinghorn. There's an air of prescription about him which is always agreeable to Sir Lester. He receives it as a kind of tribute. He likes Mr. Tulkinghorn's dress. There's a kind of tribute in that too. It is eminently respectable and likewise, in a general way, retainer-like. It expresses, as it were, the steward of the legal mysteries, the butler of the legal cellar of the deadlocks. Has Mr. Tulkinghorn any idea of this himself? It may be so, or it may not. But there is this remarkable circumstance to be noted in everything associated with my Lady Dedlock as one of a class, as one of the leaders and representatives of her little world. She supposes herself to be an inscrutable being, quite out of the reach and ken of ordinary mortals, seeing herself in her glass where indeed she looks so. Yet every dim little star revolving about her, from her maid to the manager of the Italian opera, knows her weaknesses, prejudices, follies, haughtinesses and caprices, and lives upon as accurate a calculation and as nice a measure of her moral nature as her dressmaker takes of her physical proportions. Is a new dress, a new custom, a new singer, a new dancer, a new form of jewellery, a new chapel, a new anything to be set up? There are differential people in a dozen callings whom my lady Dudlock suspects of nothing but prostration before her, who can tell you how to manage her as if she were a baby, who do nothing but nurse her all their lives, who humbly affecting to follow with profound subservience, lead her and her whole troop after them, who, in hooking one, hook all and bear them off, as Lemuel Gulliver bore away the stately fleet of the majestic Lilliput. If you want to address our people, sir, say Blaze and Sparkle the jewellers, meaning by our people, Lady Denlock and the rest, you must remember that you are not dealing with the general public. You must hit our people in their weakest place, and their weakest place is such a place. To make this article go down, gentlemen, 
say Sheen and Gloss, the mercers, to their friends, the manufacturers, you must come to us because we know where to have the fashionable people and we can make it fashionable. If you want to get this print upon the tables of my high connection, sir, says Mr. Slattery, the librarian, if you want to get this dwarf or giant into the houses of my high connection, sir, if you want to secure this entertainment, the patronage of my high connection, sir, you must leave it, if you please, to me. For I have been accustomed to study the leaders of my high connection, and I may tell you without vanity that I can turn them around my finger, in which Mr. Slattery, who is an honest man, does not exaggerate at all. Therefore, while Mr. Tulkinghorn may not know what is passing in the deadlock mind at present, it is very possible that he may. My lady's cause has been again before the Chancellor, has it, Mr. Tulkinghorn? says Sir Lester, giving him his hand. Yes, it has been on again today, Mr. Tulkinghorn replies, making one of his quiet bows to my lady who is on a sofa near the fire, shading her face with a hand screen. It would be useless to ask, says my lady, with the dreariness of the place in Lincolnshire still upon her, whether anything has been done. Nothing that you would call anything has been done today, replies Mr. Tulkinghorn. Nor ever will be, says my lady. Sir Lester has no objection to an interminable chancery suit. It is slow, expensive, British, constitutional kind of thing. To be sure, he has not a vital interest in the suit in question her part in which was only the property my lady brought him, and he has a shadowy impression that for his name, the name of Dedlock, to be in a cause, and not in the title of that cause, is a most ridiculous accident. But he regards the Court of Chancery, even if it should involve an occasional delay of justice and a trifling amount of confusion, as a something devised in conjunction with a variety of other somethings by the perfection of human wisdom for the eternal settlement, humanly speaking, of everything. And he is upon the whole of a fixed opinion that to give the sanction of his countenance to any complaints respecting it would be to encourage some person in the lower classes to rise up somewhere, like Watt Taylor. As a few fresh affidavits have been put upon the file, says Mr. Tulkinghorn, and as they are short, and as I proceed upon the troublesome principle of begging leave to possess my clients with any new proceedings in a cause. Cautious man, Mr. Tulkinghorn, taking no more responsibility than necessary. And further, as I see you're going to Paris, I have brought them in my pocket. Sir Lester was going to Paris too, by the by, but the delight of the fashionable intelligence was in his lady. Mr. Tulkinghorn takes out his papers asks permission to place them on a golden talisman of a table at my lady's elbow, puts on his spectacles, and begins to read by the light of a shaded lamp. In Chancery, between John Jarndyce, my lady interrupts, requesting him to miss as many of the formal horrors as he can. Mr. Tulkinghorn glances over his spectacles and begins again, lower down. My lady carelessly and scornfully abstracts her attention. Sir Lester, in a great chair, looks at the fire and appears to have a stately liking for the legal repetitions and prolixities as ranging among the national bulwarks. 
It happens that the fire is hot where my lady sits, and that the hand screen is more beautiful than useful, being priceless but small. My lady, changing her position, sees his papers on the table, looks at them nearer, looks at them nearer still, asks impulsively, Who copied that? Mr. Tulkinghorn stops short, surprised by my lady's animation and her unusual tone. Is it what you people call law hand, she asks, looking full at him in her careless way again and toying with her screen? Not quite, probably. Mr. Tulkinghorn examines it as he speaks. The legal character which it has was acquired after the original hand was formed. Why do you ask? Anything to vary this detestable monotony. Oh, go on, do. Mr. Tulkinghorn reads again. The heat is greater. My lady screams her face. Sir Lester dozes, starts up suddenly and cries, Eh, what did you say? I say I'm afraid, says Mr. Tulkinghorn, who had risen hastily, that Lady Dedlock is ill. Faint, my lady murmurs with white lips. Only that. But it is like the faintness of death. Don't speak to me. Ring and take me to my room. Mr. Tulkinghorn retires into another chamber. Bells ring. Feet shuffle and patter. Silence ensues. Mercury at last begs Mr. Tulkinghorn to return. Better now, quoth Sir Lester, motioning the lawyer to sit down and read to him alone. I have been quite alarmed. I never knew my lady swoon before. But the weather is extremely trying. And she really has been bored down at our place in Lincolnshire. <laughs>